the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, there will be war, and for rats with the death wish getting into my attic, there will be warfarin. Earks and deserved snarks. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. All right now. Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bane Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have a great roundtable discussion this time on the late great grandmaster of science fiction, Jerry Pornell. Out Now at Booksellers is the best of Jerry Pornell, edited by John F. Carr. We have with us John F. Carr, and we have two of Jerry Pornell's sons, Alex Pornell and Philip Pornell. It's a wonderful discussion of Jerry Pornell's life and work. This is part one of two parts, by the way. And we continue with the audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. The November E-Arcs are here. Now an E-Arc is the repository of all the punchlines of all the jokes ever told. There isn't quite room to store the setups, only the punchlines. So in the event of an apocalypse, when the aliens discover this archive, they're going to have to reconstruct humanity's entire sense of humor just from the zingers. An impossible task, you say? Not for an alien monster with a real sense of humor. No, no, no. An E-Arc is the electronic advanced reading copy of a book. What these are are the galleys, what we used to call the galleys of a book, which is the pre-proofread, post-copy-edited version of a book. And we put them out early as ebooks because, heck, they're available and there are so many series and new writers that you want to check out. And you can do that like three months, four months early. We do this only on the Bain.com site, by the way. For November, first we have Breaking Silence eARC from Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin. Fight for the soul of silence. Silence, Maine was once a town left behind by progress, full of dread and misery, because the Blackthorns, the first family of silence, who also happened to be dark elves who feed off the town's misery, liked it that way. But all that's changed thanks to teenage Stacy and her friends. The Blackthorns have been all but defeated. Industry is returning to the town. And Stacy's mom, once a hopeless alcoholic, is improving with each passing day. But evil dies hard, and Stacy, now a mage in training, senses that the Blackthorns have not yet given up the fight. The soul of silence is on the line, and it is up to Stacy and her friends to push back against the encroaching darkness. Next for November is the Initiate E-Arc by James L. Cambius. The sorcerers who rule the world are going down. The Apkalu are masters of magic. They rule the world from the shadows, using mind control and deadly monsters to eliminate any threat to their power. Sam Arcaro lost his family to a demon sent by the Apkalu. He knew nobody would believe the truth, but now an old man offers Sam the chance to find out who is responsible and bring down the Apkalu forever. Under a new identity, Sam must learn the secrets of magic, infiltrate the Apkalu, 
and walk a razor's edge of daring as he attempts to destroy the Apkalu leaders and avoid the supernatural detectives on his trail. But Sam's greatest challenge perhaps lies within to avoid becoming like the hated Apkalu himself. Finally, now in New York form is Straight Out of Dodge City, edited by David Boop. Ghost Riders in the Sky and on the prairies and plains, too. It's the final showdown between heroes and darkness in the Old West. Humans versus monsters, supernatural beings versus greater evils, with a dinosaur or two thrown in for fun. Come explore the untold myths of the West. But no dying on the trail. A passel of great tales of Western weirdness by Joe R. Lansdale, Mercedes Lackey, John Mayberry, James A. Moore, Harry Turtledove, Tex Thompson, and more. Straight out of Dodge City, E.R.C., edited by David Boop, The Initiate, E.R.C., by James L. Cambius, and Breaking Silence, E.R.C., by Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin, are now available exclusively at Bain.com. This is part one of a two-part interview. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. want to welcome John F. Carr, Philip Pornell, and Alex Pornell to the podcast. Hello, guys. Hi. Howdy. Howdy. John F. Carr is the author of seven published novels, and along with co-editor Jerry Pornell, he has edited over 20 theme anthologies and short story collections. He's also an authority on the life and works of H. Beam Piper, and uh, I believe you're, the, you're in charge of the estate as well, right, John? No, I'm not in charge of the estate, but I've got the uh, a, a website that's a, we call it the H. Uh, Beam Piper Memorial website that uh, talks ah. about Beam, and you know, uh, I'm sort of the uh, locus for Piper stuff since I've written two biographies on him. And your other works include Space Opera, Ophidi- Ophidian Conspiracy, and several novels, um, some co-written with Roland Green. Um, some set in the Paratime universe of H. Beam Piper. Yeah, and I've got a couple of Space Viking uh, novel sequels and uh, a lot of Lord Calvin books. <laughs> About seven of them. And you are also the editor. You're well known for, for working with Dr. Jerry Pornell, um, which is what we'll be talking about, of course. And you're the editor of uh, this great new anthology that we have out uh, collection. Uh, well, let me go on. Philip Hornell was a Navy surface warfare officer, a military advisor to the Department of Defense's Office of Net Assessment. I think ONA is defense, right, um, for several years. And he now works as a, a consulting, uh, as a consultant, as director for gaming, war gaming and analysis for uh, long-term strategies. Is that the name of the company, Phil? Yes, the Long-Term Strategy Group. It's uh, here in D.C. and... Uh, we provide you know, analysis uh, on long-term strategies, uh, you know, looking out uh, 20, 30 years in the future. And uh, that's after 26 years uh, serving in the Navy. Phil is the son of, of Jerry Pornell. And we also have Alex Pornell, who is uh, IT project manager. Um, he's consultant now. And he assisted uh, Jerry Pornell for, for many years writing that column for Byte that, um, that we all knew and loved. Um, out now, 
at booksellers everywhere is The Best of Jerry Pornell, The Collected Tales of Science Fiction Legend, uh, edited by John F. Carr. And I thought we'd, um, we could talk about the collection and also just talk about Dr. Pornell a little bit, um, since y'all are the most qualified uh, collection of people in the world to talk about this. <laughs> so... Um, I, I, maybe we could just jump in in various ways. Tell us a little bit about, maybe uh, Phil or Alex, um, tell us a little bit about his background. Tennessee, growing up, Christian Brothers College, uh, that high school that he cared about so much. Um, who He read the whole damn encyclopedia through, something like that. Can tell us a, a little bit about what formed uh, this great science fiction writer of our time? Well, some of it is... Um shall we say, subject to uh, family legend because he was first and foremost a storyteller and the first story he told was his own life. But as much as we can tell, much of his life was formed in fairly dire circumstances during the during the tail end of the Depression and uh, moving a great deal and then uh, serving in Korea as an as a 90-day wonder, and a, uh, which is to say a commissioned officer uh, during the time of the Korean War. Where he had 90 days to uh, learn to be an officer and then was suddenly in command of an artillery battalion and then uh, was that? wandered around the, the country and became an academic after that for a while, quite a while. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what does that mean a ninety day wonder and and was that right out of high school um and and what led him then to go to uh that i guess it was uh university of washington right well he well, attended West Point for somewhere between two weeks and a month. John, do you have more on that yeah, and he got drafted right out of that because they were desperate for officers in uh Korea it was uh you know things were not going well there for a while. And uh, they didn't have, because they decommissioned so much of the Army after World War II, they didn't have the officer corps they needed. And so uh, Jerry was drafted right out and sent over and put right on the front line after 90 days. So that was quite a shock, I'm sure, to him. But he did quite well over there. I mean, he one of his favorite stories... And he actually uses it in Exiles to Glory was that, you know, when he was over there, uh, he was really glad to come back. And I mean, because they, they pretty much got sent back. They were The artillery guys were the last guys out of Korea. So they were really the tail end of that uh, retreat. And when they got out of there, he got back on the ship to go home, and your dad wanted to go to school, but he knew it was going to take a while before the GI Bill kicked in, so he he was doing some uh, card playing on the ship. And I don't know how many people know this, but uh, Jerry had an eidetic memory, so he was quite good at cards, especially anything where you had to count them. And uh, he had won a couple of pots a fairly large sum of money, and some of the guys were getting ticked off because they were going, hey, this guy's too good. He's got to be cheating. And uh, 
Jerry saw a couple of these big guys come in his way during an argument, so he took a $50 bill and he goes, uh, $50 to the first guy who shuts that guy's mouth up. <laughs> and man, the two big guys came over and grabbed him, and that was the end of that. And he always had a sort of a protector. And uh, a piece of that story appears in Exiles to Glory. Uh, so it's, it, it was kind of interesting to hear Jerry actually tell the real story behind that. But uh, he used that money to help finance himself. And I think, I believe it was the University of Nebraska he started out at. Uh, he didn't go directly to Washington. That was later on after the GI Bill kicked in that he went to Washington and, and went to school there. But getting back to the uh, encyclopedia story, when he was, uh, uh, when Jerry grew up, he was in a one-room elementary school in, in Tennessee, in a very small town, and all grades went there. And Jerry was bored out of his mind, as he used to tell me, and he said, so I just sat down and decided for the fun of it to read the entire Encyclopedia Britannica. Well, when he got to the the part about nitroglycerin, he decided that maybe it would be kind of an interesting experiment to make some homegrown nitro. And he, apparently he wasn't sure where to set it off, so he took it out to the duck pond and threw it in there and blew the entire pond out. I mean, the, it just wiped it out. There, All the water was gone. And, of course, everybody in the neighborhood, including the school, was very worried about this kid who needed, obviously, better uh, better attention paid to him than he was getting at this one-room schoolhouse. And so it was, that's when his dad decided to send him off to Memphis to the uh, Christian Brothers High School. And that's how he yeah. ended up yeah. there. Dad described well, that was, as uh, uh, when the uh, yeah, juvenile delinquents of his region uh, got into trouble, that they would send them off to military school. And so... Uh, Christian Brothers School was effectively the military school uh, for him and was one of the reasons why, as I uh, found in his military records, that he uh, uh, you know, basically inducted as a corporal but then quickly uh, impressed in the services, uh, as they said, in the 90-day wonder. Right. And then he uh, was in a place called uh, Kunuri, and as I have spoken to uh, uh, Army officer uh, friends of mine on the uh, on the Secretary of Defense staff, they knew exactly where I was talking about, and uh, their description of the areas and some of the information I, I was able to gather, it was a very um, intense uh, battle site, and um, uh, things were not going well for the Americans. So I can just imagine the uh, the, the horror that he experienced there. Oh, right. Right. Yeah, well, you what... could also talk about, uh, quote-unquote, firing over open sights, which basically means that you're using an artillery uh, weapon as a shotgun, which uh, that's never supposed to happen. The artillery right. are not I... supposed to be anywhere near that close, and but that was those were desperate times, and that certainly informed his writing. And and they had those mass uh, attacks by the Chinese. And he, one story he told me that they had some Turks. It was a United Nations-sponsored uh, thing, so that there were some Turks and some French. And he was telling me about this one former Legionnaire officer who used to walk behind his men with a swagger stick. And here's 
they heard these people, the Chinese are charging, there's bullets going everywhere, and this guy's just calmly walking behind his men, tapping them with a swagger stick as they stand there shooting and firing and hoping to to, to halt that uh, charge of Chinese soldiers. Because by this time, they were that's who they were mostly fighting. So he, he always thought that, that showed a certain grandeur under stress that he would really impress the hell out of him. <laughs> Do you? Th- I mean, Korea was obviously a huge influence then on uh, on on his later on his later life and his writing. Um, do you think that this had some, he he was going into science, but then he decided to become a science fiction writer? Um, how did that process work? How Jerry Pornell? Uh, he has a PhD in what psychology with statistical emphasis, something like that. How did he become John Campbell's? Uh... Go ahead. Well, yeah, M.E. Yeah. and Poli Sci, too. He, he invented the two-axis uh, political diagram that has been since become common use. Uh, the uh, you know he he was a he was a true polymath as far as that goes, and he went from the University of Washington to Boeing, which was a fairly common thing at the time, and spent a lot of time at Boeing and had many stories there before he became a an SF uh, author. Right now, he, one of the now I used to talk to him a lot about it because you know we were putting these anthologies together, and he would tell me stories he remembered from reading uh, Analog when he was in high school. And Jerry was a huge fan of science fiction, and he was impressed by the the space the space race, and and he was uh, a huge fan of technology and going into space and and progress of humankind, and Basically, he was reading science fiction novels when he started getting in touch with different authors after he got back from Korea. And when he was in Washington, he would he belonged to the local uh, university science fiction club, and he got to know a lot of people there. And when they had some of the science fiction cons there, including a world con, he got to meet uh, Poole Anderson and uh, Mr. Heinlein. And he hit it off with both of those men, and in fact, it was Mr. Heinlein and H. Beam Piper who both corresponded extensively with Jerry, uh, who encouraged him to start writing. Uh, they they saw something there that they thought, okay, this guy knows this stuff, and we need more scientists in the field. I mean, that's always been uh, a synergy, and so, especially in, in the, Campbellian, the Campbellian years of Astounding, uh, where Campbell actively encouraged uh, working scientists to write science fiction. And Jerry, you know, certainly fell under that rubric. Well, when, Phil and Alex, when were you guys born, and did did you grow up in Seattle or um, in LA area after, um, after the, what do you remember of your childhood and your dad at that, at, at those crucial phases for you? So I was the only one born in Seattle and, uh, he, the, at the time, not long, you know, for part of my conscious, first conscious memories were, were moving from Seattle to San Bernardino because uh, Dad had uh, gotten a job at aerospace. But wait, says the attentive listener, isn't aerospace in uh, El Segundo? Yes, but they had a big office at the then Norton Air Force Base in San Bernardino, 
because that was about as far from the Pentagon as you could get, meaning that uh, and still be in the continental U.S. because they were working on what was called Project 75, which was, as in 1975, this being about 64, which is to say, looking 10 years in the future. If you see a contour from that to science fiction to my brother Phil's career, I believe you are correct. Um, that uh, looking at the future has been in the family business for a long time. I remember a little bit of San Marandino. We then moved to uh, the Valley, where my uh, mother still lives, and that was the house where, uh, uh, let's see, I think, yeah, well, uh, Frank wasn't born there, but Bill was, and Rich, my two younger brothers, and uh, so we grew up in the in the Valley, and San Fernando Valley, in rather different circumstances than being in Seattle. Uh, Dad was still very much part of the science fiction community then and uh, went to cons. And certainly his uh, bohemian side, yes, he had a bohemian side, was not entirely gone. But uh, it was there that he transitioned to being a full-time SF author. Phil, what do you remember? Okay, so we grew up in uh, yeah, the, in San Fernando Valley, and I was born in 67, uh, literally 30 days after they had moved into the house. So that's pretty much all I could remember. And the house was absolutely full of books, because not only Dad was a writer and a professor, but uh, Mom was a teacher specializing in, uh, in uh, reading, teaching kids how to read. And so the house was absolutely full of books. And the two key memories that can come to my mind is... Uh, uh, first off, uh, very early on, I remember um, Alex and my dad playing the Starship Troopers uh, war game, board game in our living room, on the floor of the living room. Uh, it was one of my first uh, memories when people ask, when did you get into war gaming? And I said, probably when I was about four, and I was watching Alex and dad playing uh, uh, Starship Troopers. And then the second memory is... Uh, of course, the house being full of books, and between Dad and John, they would just push books at me. Dad would push you know, history books <laughs> and science books at me, and John would push these uh, uh, great science fiction stories. And unfortunately, John has ruined me because I now have a closet full of half-read books. He, he made my tastes too uh, rich. In that I have, little, I don't have a lot of time to start with, but I have uh, too rich of a taste, and then I'll read through a book, get through a quarter of it or half of it, and say this is not worth my time, and put it back. And I, I think, in some respects, that ruins me. And that well, same living room was a great John's office. <laughs> reading a lot of crap, but anyway, go on. <laughs> that's true. Well, that's why we. Uh, read so many uh, books that Tony uh, edits. <laughs> wink, wink. Yeah. So uh, that same yeah. living room was uh, was John's office. Uh, the house is still called Chaos Manor, and uh, I always call it Winchester Mystery House South because it, had two, it has now two second stories that don't connect. Um, and the front is where John's office was in the living room until uh, the till after uh, Dad uh, and Larry uh, enjoyed a great deal of success, and Dad had enough money to add on his office, which is the front second story, 
which then brought enough the great room hall, for uh, John to have it. Yes, the Great Hall. <laughs> Although in between that time, once again, uh, sometimes uh, the do-it-yourself uh, spirit came through. Dad had this plan to build his own uh, new office in front of what had been his office, and we started <laughs> Constructing it ourselves until cooler heads read my mother uh, decided no this is not going to happen we got about as far as starting to dig a foundation and I believe the neighbors complained and then a real architect came along and then the real great hall and the study etc got built so it was fairly cramped for uh, both between the books and uh, shall we say the bustling personalities and four kids uh, and that was where most of the work that uh, John did with uh, Dad took place was, you know, in between the piles of, of submitted stories, because, yes, they were still all submitted on paper back then, and the books that came in for review and the computer equipment that came in for review. So it was, uh, it still is pretty chock-a-block with, with equipment, although there's less. And the books, certainly the books, are still there. And that was how we all grew, kind of grew up. Right. And yeah. when I moved, when I came to work in 75, late 75, early 76, the uh, uh, Alex was starting high school, and the rest of the boys were in elementary school. And I grew up in a family of five, and I was the oldest. So to me, it was like I sort of had a new family. <laughs> Because, you know, I sort of kept an eye out on the kids and because I was totally in the mix. I was right in the living room. I would be working there and they'd come home and, I, you know, I would talk to them. And I got to know the boys very well uh, and uh, got very fond of all of them. And it, it was, I thought it was a, a great working environment. And then things got, after the Great Hall got uh, built, I ended up taking over Jerry's former old office, which was uh, underneath the state. And and that was a little more comfortable, and I was able to spread out and uh, I, the bookshelves that were there. I was able to fill with all the back issues of Astounding magazine. I which I had Jerry order so that we had uh, that as a touchstone, so that we could any story he remembered from reading, he'd go, "Yeah, there was a William Ten story I remembered about 1948. Think you can find it, John?" And I just sit there and look it up, and and uh, and oh yeah. That's a great story, Jerry. Okay, let's stick it in Imperial Stars Volume Two, and and that's how we work a lot of times. It was a, it was a, it was an interesting time, and uh, you know I felt very much a part of the entire clan. <laughs> you you have a really great remembrance essay in uh, the best of Jerry Pornell, um, where you where you you talk about how you came on board and um, and sort of it, how did. How long did you stay on, and how did it work? That you um, were you part of uh, you were part of the mix while the during the the late seventies, early eighties, when um, when Jerry Pornell and Larry Niven were writing their their blockbusters. Um, yeah, well, I started in I started as I, I didn't really start. It wasn't really a job when I first came over. Jerry was getting overwhelmed after the success of Moton God's Eye. Uh, that book was, uh, I like to call it like the Energizer Rabbit. It just kept moving and selling and selling, and it kept 
getting more and more sales. I mean, Jerry and Larry made a lot of money on the uh, on the royalties from that book because they didn't get much of an advance. And the the more the more that book sold, the more contact he had with fans and different committees and people wanted him to take up his time, I mean, in a, in a positive way, you know, speak at conventions or give lectures, but it was getting overwhelming. He was having trouble working on books with Larry, and they had just finished uh, uh, The Inferno during that period, and he was just overwhelmed. So he had talked to Stephen Golden, who was a friend of mine, and, and he was the editor of the Bulletin of the Science Fiction Writers of America, and I was his assistant editor. And he was basically grooming me to take over the job, which I did in another year or two. And uh, Jerry was talking to Stephen because he had some respect for him, because he was the one of the local people who was involved in the Science Fiction Writers of America. And Jerry, even by that time, was a former president. And so he talked to Steve and offered Steve, said, you know, I need some help organizing. Can you do it? And Steve goes, no. At that time, he just signed a contract for a new book with uh, Laser Books, and he was pretty busy. And he says, no, I don't have the time, but, you know, I've got another author, John Carr, just published his first novel, and, you know, he, he'd probably work great, and he's helping me out with a bulletin and doing a good job. So... Uh, I got a call from Jerry, and he asked me if I'd come over and help him straighten some things out for a week or so. And I said, sure. Sounds like fun. I mean, you know, I I had met Jerry previously, and I was a huge fan of his Galaxy column a step farther out. I thought that was probably the most inspiring piece of nonfiction I mean, you've got to remember, this is the, the, the age of small is best and limits of growth. And people were really concerned that we had just turned the corner, that America was going to have to start buttoning down. We were going to have to start giving things up, that things were coming to a close. Paul Ehrlich was talking about the population bomb. And frankly, it was a nervous time. And to read Jerry was thrilling because he was going, wait a minute, there's no limit but nerve. You know, we can do pretty much anything we want. So I was, I thought, oh, okay, this is this is a great opportunity to, to meet Jerry and spend some time with him. So I was able to... Uh, go over to his house and <laughs> I go up and into the original office and the floor and the office was just packed with banker boxes and they were overflowing with correspondence mostly and junk mail, all kinds of stuff. And Jerry just shrugged his shoulders and he goes, I, I just sort through this stuff, John, just get it done. And I said, sure. So I spent about two weeks. I organized all the stuff, got rid of all the, as Jerry used to call it, garbage, which is anything that wasn't too important. I uh, threw out all the junk mail, and I found about four or five checks in there. I mean, in this, these piles of correspondence, checks from pocketbooks and checks from Galaxy magazine that he just never didn't even have time to sort through. So after about two weeks of doing this, everything was sorted, and then he sent me up for about a week to organize the, the uh, attic where he had a lot of his uh, files that he put together while he was a professor over at Pepperdine. And there was one called Revolution, and there was another one called uh, Mathems, which were things fans had sent him that he didn't want to throw out, but he didn't have room in the house because there were so many books to put on the walls. 
So uh, I sorted that all out, and I finished it all up, and he thanked me graciously and said, wow, okay, you did a great job, and now I can get to work. And I thought, okay, that was fun. And uh, about three weeks later, I got another call from him, and he said, John, I need you back here again. (laughs) And I went there, and by God, things were piled back up almost as bad as when I'd been there previously. And at that point, Jerry uh, asked me, he said, John, would you uh, like to stay on part-time and, and help me help me kind of, you know, take care of things, answer the phones, and, and sort of be my uh, handyman here because I need some help, and you seem to know what you're doing. And for me, it was easy because I just looked at it as if it were my stuff. I'm an author. I know what's important and what isn't. And uh, from that point on, my job was basically to make Jerry's life as simple as possible, take care of all the stuff that he didn't need to be directly involved with, answer the phones and get rid of the the you know, nonsense calls or the, the ad calls and and sometimes talk to people who had, you know, a good reason to call, but Jerry was busy writing and didn't have time to talk to him. So I would take messages and if it was really important, I would go up and bug him and say, okay, Jerry, you need to, it's your agents on the phone this time. And he'd get on there and talk to him. But uh, it was, it was great. It was great, and it ended up being a 20-year gig. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I had a hell of a good time there. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being around the boys. I enjoyed watching them grow up. I enjoyed watching Jerry's career go off like a skyrocket. Because I was there before Lucifer's Hammer hit, and 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 Jerry hit the bestseller lists and all that stuff, and and there were some exciting times, I'll tell you. It was it was a lot of fun. Well, the uh, that sort of strain between um, strain the, and writing nonfiction was always like a salient feature of uh, of Jerry Portnoy. He always, I mean, and eventually he be, he became um, well known for that bike column, um, which I read all the time. Uh, by the way, and I felt like I lived in the house with you guys. By the way, <laughs> in the way you described it, sometimes. But um, the uh, this sort of positive attitude toward the possibilities of technology, um, and I mean, in the book we we see the uh, survival with style essay. You start out with that when you're maybe tell us a little bit about how you organize the book, John, and how it is um, what's in there, and because it combines this nonfiction and fiction side. The science, the scientist, and the science fiction writer are both present. Well, what I was trying to do was to give an overview of Jerry, the man, the scientist, and the and the nonfiction author. Uh, a lot of people just do, don't know how broad his interests were. I mean, at one time he was the guy behind the L five Society, or one of the founders of it, and certainly did more to push it through his columns than anybody else. But, you know, there was too much of that to put into the book. There's no, I mean, the book would have had to been 300,000 words. And here's what's interesting about it. The original contract was for 100,000 words. And I sort of went, oh, wow, that's going to be tight, because Jerry didn't write short fiction, only three or four stories were I would consider short. 
most of his best work was in the novella range. So by the time I went through and picked all my favorite stories up, I was already over 200,000 words. So I went, boy, what can I do? And I just said, well, John, here's what you're going to do. You're going to make it the best damn book you can, and then you're going to leave it up to your editors to trim it. (laughs) It'll be their problem. (laughs) So I had a lot of fun. Now, the the thing that struck me about the book was that no one – during and, and considering Jerry's career spanned about 50 years, no one had ever done a best of collection ever. And I'm surprised Jerry himself didn't put it together. So when I was uh, after his passing, I was going through a lot of my remembrances of Jerry and, and the things we'd done together. And I thought, you know, it's probably be a nice time to see a good collection of his work. And then it hit me. My God, nobody's ever done a best of Jerry Purnell. So then I talked to the uh, publisher at Bain, uh, Tony there, and I pitched it to her. And uh, the uh, state seemed okay with it. And uh, we just went from there. But uh, it was it was a lot of fun putting it together. And I tried to... Uh, take each story and give uh, some remembrance of, of things that were going on at that time or something personal about Jerry that would tie into that particular story. And uh, it, it covers everything from his uh, uh, Laurie Johansson stories, which are interestingly pre-science, because here in the 60s and early, late 60s, early 70s, Jerry was already writing about people like Musk who were starting their own uh, space outfits, trying to reach into space because they'd given up on NASA. And Jerry had, had already had those ideas going on with uh, in the 70s. And it was it was quite quite ahead of its time and and in to Jerry's mind it was sadly ahead of his time because he damn well thought we should have been on you know after the moon we should have had a, a serious space station up within at least a decade and i think Jerry was always saddened by the fact that uh you know the government got so involved and drugged their heels so damn much that really we were never quite anywhere near his own fantasies of, of just where science fiction should be and and what he'd always push for as an author and as a science writer. But uh, so anyway, I put the book together and I, I wanted to touch more on his essays, but I was afraid that if I got into that, we'd had a book about the size of 300,000 words and I didn't think anybody was going to go for that. But uh, that was my approach. And it wasn't well, it's just that he talked about it. He also did things like uh, organize the Citizen Advisory Council on National Space Policy. Definitely not a marketable name, but it told the tale, which effectively invented the so-called Star Wars speech that uh, that begat uh, the Strategic Defense Initiative. He also uh, was key to getting the so-called DCX, the DC Delta Clipper, the a rocket that takes off and lands on a tail of fire like God and Robert Heinlein intended uh, to actually get some cash money to happen. And those both laid the uh, paving stones for the private space we see today. So it wasn't just that he wrote about it. He got the right people together to uh, organize something that 
actually influenced policy. Right. One of the things your dad was always proudest of was the fact that he would go to those AAAS meetings, the American Advancement of Science, and he would have parties there. A lot of them originally were sponsored by Mr. Vaughn, who the Texas millionaire who had a foundation out in Texas. And they would put on a big party, and he would invite all of his the most knowledgeable people in many different fields. And then he would go around and introduce people like our, uh, Penrose. He would introduce him to Dyson, or you know, and he'd try to get really interesting people that to meet and talk together. And a lot of interesting collaborations came out of that, and people got to become friends and and uh, exchange interdisciplinary information. And your dad was always immensely proud of that accomplishment. He sort of saw himself as the butter, as the bumblebee of science. They used to call it, and we got a hell of a kick out of it. And then he would do his uh, annual columns on the meetings and and talk about some of the things that had happened there. So he was he was not just a science fiction writer or a, a computer uh, enthusiast. He was a, a man that was moving behind the scene and making things happen. And one of the things he made happen in the science fiction world was he was the man responsible for the ACE audit. And that was the first major science fiction or any any organization, period, of any writing organization to actually audit a major book publisher. And we went through their books with a fine-tooth comb, and there was an immense amount of money that was given to authors. And Jerry never got anywhere near the uh, recognition for that he should have. Frankly, uh, the fact is the science fiction writers of America should be ashamed of themselves for never having made him a grandmaster. It was one of the things he always wanted. An award that, uh, yes, an award that he created, let us not forget. As he would yes. say, uh, it was, he thought it would be the only way he'd ever win a nebula. Of course, he didn't. But he did get, of course, Mr. Heinlein recognized that way and many others who were deserving. So I think he'd be proud of that, even though it didn't quite work out the way he'd hoped. Considering what the science fiction awards have become, it's it's actually a mark of honor not to have won um, <laughs> these days. So. <laughs> certainly these days, although this was more for the body of work, which, I mean, Jerry certainly has one of the more significant bodies of work for for a science fiction author, especially of his era. He was what I call one of the last of the great old men. And by that, I mean Robert Heinlein, Poole Anderson, Gordy Dickinson, all the famous and, and huge Campbellian authors, most of whom I got to meet and work with. And I will say they were larger than life. And when I see the penguin or the pygmies that run around today and call themselves SF masters, I, I want to laugh because I was there when when the men were men, or you could put it. And there were there were real there were real. Let's face authors. it, the women were men too. I mean, there were some <laughs> women were female men. authors who at the time that were right, like uh, larger than North. life. Uh, Exactly, yeah. or or James Tipperay yeah. Jr., who were who were incredibly influential in the the field as well. It wasn't. I mean, yes, it was largely, but not all, a boys' club. There were, and right. I right. never saw him treat them as anything less than intellectual equals. Too, let's face it. 
Oh yeah, well he was a huge yeah. fan of Andre Norton's. I mean, he, you know, he he thought she was one of the best writers in the from the fifties, the and they were they weren't friends in the sense that they visited, but uh, he would talk about her a lot, and then she would call every once in a while, and they'd have a great conversation. <laughs> he admired her body of work yeah. quite well. Well, there were some. I mean, I think, yeah. The men, you know, as we, you know, we're not talking about just men. We're talking about a, a, an era of science fiction greats. Um, you know, Ursula Gwynn was around at the time. Um, Joanna Russ, uh, et cetera. You know, some some amazing. And James Tiptree Jr., Alice Sheldon was was amazing. Um, anyway, uh, back to back to Jerry Pornell. The, there, there's a sense of wonder in. I mean, that's the thing he he gets. I mean, I was I was looking at the book. You have things like taking icebergs to 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 um, irrigate Africa, um, this idea of Nerva propulsion, uh, laser launches, which he was just totally into in the in the 70s. These are things that like um, set the tone for science fiction for that 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 were the next step after Heinlein. Modern disaster novel, and he and and uh, Larry wrote uh, Lucifer's Hammer, a, a movie that's been Absolutely. made six times. We've just never seen a dime. <laughs> it's about a comet that that comes for the, yeah. So it's and the we, we would like to mention that the Galaxy Science Fiction uh, columns that he did were written. I think Jim Bain was the editor at that time, right? And he wrote a lot of science columns for Jim over the years. Yeah, Jim Bain and Jerry had a very special relationship. They were very close. Uh, Jim used to love to feed Jerry ideas and uh, like do one about Nerva, you know, a column about Nerva, and then Jerry would give him a 20-minute lecture on the phone. And I would listen to a lot of this stuff because Jerry was in the next room. I'm in the living room. He's in his office. And, and due to his uh, years as an artillery officer, he had a hearing problem. So he tended to talk just a little louder than your average bear. <laughs> what? So I got... So I got to hear a lot of those conversations with Jim Bain, and he and Jim had a wonderful rapport. And he loved working with Jim because he was the one editor that could bring out the best in him, especially when it came to nonfiction. But uh, even fiction, for example, the Janissary series was started as almost a collaboration between Jim and Jerry. And how it happened was Jim had gotten these two Spanish artists, one of them Viejo and I forget the other one, who were excellent excellent illustrators but they were and they were willing to work cheap so jim got the idea for ace books of doing illustrated novellas and one of the first ones he got to do it was larry niven who did uh, the magic goes away or something along that lines and uh, he approached jerry about doing one and jerry had a a, a, a couple of unfinished projects in his files. And one of them was uh, an idea he'd always thought was interesting was that science fiction, uh, flying saucers are for real. They're not just, the saucer people aren't just crazies. They're people who are actually tuned into what's going on. And he talked to Jim about that. And Jim said, great, write me a novella on it. So Jerry went up to his office and started working on uh, the first Janissaries, and 
he was it was very involved between the two of them because they had a very tight time schedule. He had like six months to write this novella, and after about three months, Jerry had written about twenty thousand words, and he and Jim calls and he says. Hey, we we got to have this stuff quick because these you know you just don't have the book. We got to have the illustrations for it. So he said, "Send me whatever you have." So Jerry sent him the twenty five, twenty to twenty five thousand words he had, and he goes, "Oh, great! How how soon can you wrap this book up?" And Jerry sort of laughed and he goes, "Well, I don't know. It just keeps going." So he said, "You know, give me another twenty thousand words and we'll call it a book." Well, twenty thousand words. Later, he's sending them to Jim about a month and a half later, and Jim's going, my God, it doesn't end. <laughs> What's happening? This book's already 45,000 words. And Jerry says, well, you know, I'll try to wrap it up with another 20 or so. And so that's how it ended up becoming a novel, is that it took a hell of a long time for Jerry to wrap it up. But meanwhile, every time he finished a chapter, he's shipping. He's got me mailing it off because we didn't have modems or any of that stuff back in, in, the, in the, that, that era. And so I'm sending that stuff off by uh, FedEx. or I, I think at that time we were using FedEx that had just started. And when I was sending it straight to Jim at his office. And then he'd send it over to the artist who'd start working on it. And so it was a very much in the, in, in the two, in both their hands to get that book out. And when it was done, it was like, are you done, Jerry? And he goes, oh, no, no, I got a lot more to go, but we'll save that for the next book. And that's how the, the whole series got started. But it was a lot of fun to watch. That was part one of a two-part interview. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 44 Ashok walked around the corner of a house and right into a group of Somsak. They were distracted by all the screaming and carrying on as panicked workers were being dragged outside and their homes looted. They were violating the law concerning the conduct of a raid, acting as criminals good. That made this much easier for him. 
The first one he killed never even knew Ashok was there. There was a black flash, and then a severed head was rolling through the snow. The head hit another somsack in the foot. He looked down, saw his companion's face, and then promptly lost his own. Ashok slid past, gutting a third, then spun and removed the arm from a fourth. That last one began to scream. Several warriors turned toward him at once. Ashok stood there, black blade dripping as the bodies collapsed around him. I am here. He had never been gifted with subtlety. Bellowing, they lifted their weapons and rushed forward. Ashok stepped into them, turning aside steel and parting flesh in return. With Angruvadal whispering how to move, where to place his body, and warning him of incoming threats that he couldn't even see, the Somsak weren't just fighting Ashok, who on his own was one of the greatest swordsmen to ever live. They were fighting every man who'd ever wielded Angruvadal. And it showed in the bloody results. Ashok parried, dodged, leaping side to side until he was in the middle of the pack, and then he went to work. Every movement resulted in serious injury as Angruvadal split chain and cleaved through bones. Angruvadal didn't cut like sharpened steel, but like a bolt of lightning blasting a tree into splinters. Warriors stumbled away, missing limbs or gushing blood, crying for help or to be avenged or for their mothers. Within a span of a few heartbeats, the surprised group was broken. Every last one of them was dead or crippled. The rest would not be so easy. He set out at a run. The odds were still against him, but better in the choke points and narrow alleys of the town than out in the open. He had to keep moving. If the Somsak could bring the full weight of their numbers against him at once, he would perish. There was shouting behind him, so Ashok moved between the houses, pushing past chicken coops, iced-over gardens, and pig pens, until he came out in the next lane. A Somsak was coming down the steps of a fine estate, carrying a crying woman over one shoulder, so Ashok hacked through his knee without even slowing. He fell with his would-be victim on top of him. More warriors were on this lane, but rushing in the direction he'd come from, so Ashok crashed right into them, swinging. He hit a somsack in the back, slicing through furs and piercing his spine. His appearance was so sudden that the others slipped and fell on the ice, scrambling to get out of his range. Ashok followed one of them as he was sliding away, and the only thing he could reach was his foot, so he lopped off the end of his boot and a few toes out of spite. There were mounted soldiers at the end of the street. They began firing their crossbows. With their horses dancing about nervously, their accuracy was terrible, and the only thing struck was an innocent worker running for cover. Bolts spent, they kneed their mounts and rode off, shouting for help. The warriors were trying to push back. His location was known, and orders were being relayed. They were coming from all directions now, converging on his position. He had to keep moving. Being surrounded meant he was finished. A spear was thrust his way, but his strong response splintered the shaft. Before the warrior even realized he'd lost his weapon, Ashok had driven Angruvadal through his chest and out the other side. He slammed his shoulder into the dying man, lifting him off the ground and pushing him back through the crowd. He was nicked and cut as he passed, 
but Angruvadal warned him of the dangerous swings, so he was able to avoid those. Crashing into the next alley, he jerked his sword free and retreated, walking backwards as the Somsac pressed into the narrow space after him. He lunged forward and sank the tip of the blade into a thigh, then fell back as the warriors tripped over their injured. The Somsac had no cavalry tradition. They didn't fight from horseback. They rode to where they were going to fight, then got off. There was no room for elaborate maneuvers on the trails and canyons they normally fought in. Their methods tended to be direct. No historian had ever accused them of being tacticians. They did not train as a group, but as individuals, overwhelming their foes with speed and violence. Each one was more focused on gaining individual glory than achieving a united goal. They were fantastic raiders and terrible frontline combatants. He would use their own traditions against them. This spot would do. He was between two solid homes. Ashok let the soldiers pile into the narrow gap after him. Two strong men, shoulder to shoulder, barely fit. Clever warriors would have boxed him in with their spears on both sides before filling him with arrows and bolts, but these were too eager to prove themselves, and they got in each other's way in their rush to be the one to strike him down. He let them build up, their overwhelming numbers giving them courage even in the face of black steel. Once there were too many of them pressed in to escape, Ashok attacked. He cut them like a tornado, a whirling, never-ending flurry of deep slashes and splattered blood. They tried to fight, but the close confines caused them to get in each other's way. Arms were retracted to strike, but elbows ran into the man behind. Feet were tripped over, and hands were bumped as Ashok turned the first rank into red fountains. He climbed over the dying and launched himself into the rest, wishing he still had his old suit of armor, because then he could have done so with even more abandon. Realizing they'd walked into a trap, the Somsac tried to fall back but crashed into their fellows. Ashok kept pushing as men slipped on ice or blood. The wooden beams were painted red, and Gruvadal warned him that the other side was filling up as well, and he turned just in time to dodge a spear that had been hurled at his back. He kept pushing through, his movements so inhumanly fast that surely some of the Somsac thought they were fighting a demon. Then he was out of the alley and back in the open. Sliding, trying to find traction, Ashok kept running. Vaulting over a railing, he landed in a crouch as crossbow bolts embedded themselves in the porch around him. He lowered his shoulder and crashed through a worker's front door. Ashok rolled across a woven rug and back to his feet. It was a nice home, with wooden floors instead of dirt, and warmed by a roaring fire in a great stone hearth. The family who lived here was hiding, terrified, beneath a table as a battle raged across their yard. He was no longer of status. He couldn't just barge into the homes of whole men. That was trespassing. He started to apologize, but the Somsac were already following him inside, roaring like madmen. Ashok ducked beneath the first's wild swing, stabbed the second through the door between the ribs, then kicked the first in the ass, launching him headfirst into the fireplace. Another followed, but he made the mistake of lifting his blade for an overhead swing, and stuck it into the roof beams. 
Angruvadal tore across his stomach, spilling his guts across the nice rug. Ashok shoved him out the door into his brothers, and several of them tripped and fell down the icy stairs. I'm sorry for invading your home, Ashok told the terrified workers between the screams of the burning warrior. That one had gotten up and was thrashing about, fur and feathers aflame. So Ashok ran him through and knocked him onto the stones so he wouldn't burn the whole house down. Should I live long enough, I will return and pay for the damage to your property. Then he headed for the back. There wasn't another door, so Ashok kicked out the shutters and climbed through. He fell on the ground, and since the runoff from the roof had collected here, the ice was so thick and slippery, it took a moment to find his footing. By the time he was up, more Somsak were already sliding around the corners. These warriors had learned a valuable lesson from the many dead and wounded he'd left behind, and they approached with far more caution. The smell of smoke struck his nostrils. He glanced over and saw a black pillar rising from the castless quarter as it was put to the torch. Earlier, he declared that those untouchables were under his protection. That was unacceptable. Ashok broke a sword cut its owner's throat, and set out toward the flames. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. And thanks to podcast theme composer Ruth Jankowicz and a triple rocket shot of streamers, confetti, and a variety of colors of macaroni shot in celebratory manner into the sky to burn up in iridescent glory and mad capri. Plus thanks, praise, and gratitude to Philip Pornell, Alex Pornell, and John F. Carr, editor of The Best of Jerry Pornell. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 